0: morning. It is a delight to be with you in worship this morning. My name is Jeff. Uh, I am the pastor of Boulevard Presbyterian Church in Oak Park. Um, a Boulevard was the second church plant, or is the second church plant of Covenant, and uh, it's a delight for me to be with you uh, this morning. So um, I was at Covenant for 15 years, um, and this was a place uh, where God met me in a lot of ways in His grace, so it's really a delight for that reason also to be back with you this morning. So this past week, uh, your pastors uh, and I went to a conference together, and so this morning, uh, Pastor Aaron and I are doing what uh, pastors in their toolbox of uh, tricks call a pulpit swap. Um, so he is um, at a Boulevard uh, preaching what's honestly probably a uh, slightly recycled sermon uh, that he preached here at Covenant, And I'm doing the same uh, from a Boulevard sermon here this morning. So it's great uh, to be with you. Um, Just to give you a brief update at Boulevard, we are now four and a half uh, years old as a church. I think we are starting to feel no longer like a little baby church. Uh, Maybe like, I was thinking maybe teenager, my wife suggested maybe college student uh, trying to find their own way in the world uh, to live on their own. Uh, We are, for the first time, going to elect leaders um, of our church this fall, Lord willing. Uh, We bought a building uh, last year, which was a great gift um, to us. And I would say, like, over these four and a half years, by God's grace, we've seen some steady growth, uh, both in number of people as well as just in experience of God and of His grace. And, you know, that's come honestly through both things that are pleasant as well as things that are hard. Um, as for each of us, as for each one of us, uh, God meets us in those ways too. So I want to thank you also, Covenant, uh, for supporting this, for having the vision uh, for the mission uh, that's behind church planning like this, uh, for your prayers for us, also for your giving um, to the ministry. So what I want to do uh, today with you uh, in this sermon is to look at this passage at the end of John 3 where John the Baptist describes his relationship with Jesus. Uh, This is a passage that's meant a lot to me personally. It's meant a lot to me in how I think about the church and how the church relates to Jesus. John, of course, himself had a very unique relationship with Jesus. He was the last in this long line of prophets to point to Jesus. John was also Jesus' cousin. So that means he had a unique relationship with him. But my hope for each one of us, as we look at how John describes how he relates to Jesus is that we would see in it also a pattern of how we, of how you relate to Jesus also. So I'm going to read uh, starting in John chapter 3, picking up in verse 22. It's printed in your order of worship if you want to follow along there or in your own Bible or you can uh, just listen as I read from John 3. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, "A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have sent him before, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom." yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's Word. It's given to us for our good. And so let me uh, just pray for us before we look more deeply at this together. Father, we've uh, sung the words of the psalmist already together, uh, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And so what I want to pray right now for each one of us is that you, by your Spirit and your written Word, would help us to taste and see that you indeed are good and that you would point each one of us in whatever circumstances we are facing in whatever burdens we bear, whatever struggles we have, that you would point each one of us to the living word who sits right now at your right hand, who's interceding even now on our behalf through the Spirit. We pray in his name, Amen. If you look at each one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll notice this pattern that each one begins with a focus on the ministry and life of John the Baptist. So you see at the beginning of the Gospels that people are going to John, that he's preaching, that they're being baptized by him, that there's a lot of attention on John at the beginning. But what happens as the narration of the Gospels continue, and of course as time historically happened, is that the focus shifts from John to Jesus. And it is this shift that John's disciples notice and honestly are bothered by. Have you ever had the experience where you're talking about some general topic with someone, and as you're talking about that topic, something else tangential comes to mind, a memory or maybe another another topic. It just comes to mind. And you realize that that thing that has been triggered by that general topic, that other tangential topic, is actually something that's been eating at you all along. It's like been there below the surface, just waiting for some trigger to bring it up. It seems like that's what happens to John's disciples in this passage. We're told that they are talking about purification with um, a Jewish man, probably related to baptism perhaps, And it's while they are talking about this general topic of purification that something comes to mind that is eating at them. So they leave that conversation and they go right to John. And they say this to him, Rabbi, you remember that man that you were talking about across the Jordan? Well, he is baptizing and all are going to him. You hear their envy in that word, all. It's like, Rabbi, you were the first one to be baptizing. You were the one who introduced this to him. You were the first. And now you know what happens. All are going to him. Maybe they're like, you know, John, we've been counting. And your baptisms are down by 50%. Right? You are losing market share to this upstart that you introduced. John, we don't like this. What are you going to do about it? Now, I'm guessing most of us, when we hear the disciples of John, their reaction, we can understand it. And I think we can understand it because envy is something that we personally know. Last weekend, uh, we celebrated uh, a birthday uh, for one of our kids. We have two kids. And it was a great party. We were, um, we were you know, as we're, we're like, gathered around uh, the birthday child's uh, celebration, uh, they're opening up gifts. And it's while this kid is opening up gifts, right, while we are celebrating them and their birthday and giving things to them, that our other child says this, this is not fair. They've, they always get more and better gifts than I do. So I was a little taken aback by this. It wasn't even their birthday. Um, um, And it was interesting, even as I asked permission to share this uh, in the sermon today, I always ask permission before I do that, this kid said yes, uh, but also said, but I've counted. And I was right. They always get more and better gifts than I do. The language says something. It's not just, I want more. It's, this is not right. I ought to have more. This is injustice. It shows us that envy as so often rooted in this narrative, I ought to come out on top. And if I'm honest with myself, this envy is not unique to children. They just merely express it more openly. Friends, I think we experience envy in the home. We experience envy at work. We experience envy in school. We experience envy even at church. Paul tells the uh, Corinthian church that he saw envy and strife in their own congregation. He wrote the Philippians that, as we heard in our New Testament lesson, that some are motivated in ministry by envy. And if it was true of the ancient church, it is likely true of our current church. Something deep in us wants what the other has. To be human in this world is to know envy. And so envy is common. It's part of our experience. But that doesn't make it okay. It is not okay because envy always robs us. It robs us of joy. It robs us of love. Right? We cannot delight in the gifts another receives. We are not able to love them when envy is present. It also robs us of our grasp on reality because envy distorts the narrative to justify itself. Okay, so that is what's going on with John's disciples. And John responds to his disciples' envy in a couple of ways. The first thing he does is to articulate a fundamental principle, he says it in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The idea behind that principle is that if we are not self-made, but are in fact made by another, well then everything in life is gift. It is received. Existence itself is a gift. We don't make our own existence, we receive it. It means that our bodies with which we do things are gifts. It means the food and all the provisions that get us through a certain day is gift. None is earning. It is all gift. Now, that isn't to say that everything in our lives and in our world is good. It's not. Scripture tells a more nuanced uh, story than that. But what John is saying is that in some sense, the good and the evil, the increase and the decrease, the employment and the unemployment that comes to us, whatever a person receives, as he puts it, comes under a good God's sovereign plan and is, in that sense, gift. And because of that, friends, the true story, it's not us versus the world. It's not us versus others. No, the true story is us under a good God's careful watch. That is the reality that deflates the false narrative behind envy that says we ought to have more. And so for John, as humble and declining as his own ministry may be, right, the uh, 50% decrease in baptisms or whatever's going on. And you know where it's hinted at in this, at the beginning of this passage, John is about to be thrown in prison, right? He's about to decrease even more. We're told in the other Gospels that John will also, after that, soon meet a violent end. So John is on the decrease, and he knows it. But even with that decrease, John sees reason to give thanks, because he knows even in the decrease, he is under a careful and loving God's watch. All that he receives is from above. Now, cultivating that kind of gratitude takes work. Cindy and I, uh, we didn't do this uh, for the birthday last weekend. We should have, uh, looking back. Uh, But we did do it before Christmas. Before we opened up any Christmas gifts with the kids, we had a talk with the kids, a little coaching session. We told the kids, look, when you get your gifts, don't just open up a gift and move on to the next one, and open that up and move on to the next one. No, open up a gift and pause. Right, Look at it, savor it, enjoy it, and give thanks to the giver. Also, notice what others are receiving and celebrate those things, too. Friends, for all of us, whatever it is in life that we receive, whether it's something we've sought and want or something we don't want, it is all worth pausing and savoring, taking it in, and ultimately giving thanks to to the giver. The discipline of gratitude is the first antidote to envy. It's the first line of defense against envy that robs us of joy and ability to love and grasp on reality. So that's John's first response to his disciples. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not only that John accepts his decrease. He actually goes on to say that this decrease that he's experiencing is good because it serves a purpose. And to explain that, John compares his role to that of the bridegroom's friend, or as, as we would say, the best man. Similar to the maid of honor uh, in a wedding, the best man's job is to support the groom, Right? to do, make sure that the groom has everything he needs, to make sure his guests are all tended for, to make sure everything in the wedding runs smoothly so that all the focus can be on the bride and groom getting married, saying their vows. So given that job description, imagine what it would be like. There could be a wedding happening right here. Bride and groom maybe are there. The groom is saying his vows. And the best man interrupts the groom to say, hold on, take your eyes off this man. I need the attention for a moment because I have some things I want to say. Now, to experience something like that in a wedding, it would feel completely absurd, right? It would feel absurd because, well, that's not what a best man does, right? That is not his role. And it is not honoring of what this moment is supposed to be about, right? The bride and groom saying their vows together. Well, John is saying, I am the bridegroom's friend. I am here for him. I am here that his voice would be heard, that his voice would increase, that I would hear his voice, that others would hear his voice. I've said it from the beginning, I am not the Christ. I am not the bridegroom, but I have been sent to prepare the way for him, to be his friend. When John calls Jesus the bridegroom, he's actually locating himself in this long tradition in Scripture. We heard some of it in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 62. This long tradition which sees God and and God's anointed king, God's Christ, as the bridegroom and God's people as the bride. And in that long story, it is John the Baptist who has the particular role of being the first person to, in the flesh point to Jesus and say he's it. That guy right there who's coming to me for baptism, that guy, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the bridegroom. So what is John's ministry when you think about it? Well, John he says things and he gets some people wet in baptism. That's basically it, right? And when I think about our ministry um, as, as humans, like what, even what the ministry of the church can, does, can do, it's basically that too. We can say things to people. We can get people wet as a sign, right, in baptism, as a sign of life. But that's basically the extent of what we are able to do in our ministries. But think about Jesus' ministry. What can He do? Well, Jesus, the one to whom John points, He can Actually, heal. Jesus, he can actually forgive sins. Jesus, he can actually make things new and recreate and even raise the dead. He can actually do these things because he is the real deal. He is the bridegroom. He is the one anointed by God to actually bring his kingdom. And because John knows that, what does he want? Though no, John doesn't want the increase of his own ministry, of saying some things and pointing through symbolic acts of putting water on people. No, John wants to point to the real deal. He wants the real deal to increase. He wants Jesus to increase, and for that, he is willing himself to decrease. Now that paradigm, it applies uniquely to John's ministry. It's true there are unique things about John's ministry, but I think we're told about it in the Gospel of John also because it in some real ways applies to all of Christian discipleship. For example, at one point a bit later in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples are going to be walking along the road and arguing about which of them is the greatest. Literally, like (laughs) they do that. Um, It shouldn't be a surprise to us. And Jesus, when he hears them arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest, responds in this way. He tells them about the paradox of how things work in his kingdom that it is the last who will be the first, that it is the one who goes the way of the cross, that is the way of death and shame, who will increase and end up living and be honored in his kingdom. It is those who decrease. Who will increase in his kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying, which I think John is implying in his own words here, is that the decrease is not for its own sake. It's not just decrease so that we, we sort of turn into nothing. No, it is decrease so that Jesus would increase, so that in Jesus' increase, we would also in him increase in a way we otherwise never could. So how practically do we decrease? Let me, in closing this out, just name two ways. So the first way we can decrease, and and this is something that we can actually do ourselves by the Spirit's help. It's this. To live according to Jesus' will and not our own. To listen to Jesus' voice about what he wants us to do with our relationships, with our hearts, with our bodies, with our finances, with our time, with our way that we relate to the poor. To say on all those things, Jesus, I want to do this, but what I'm going to do is what you want me to do. That is us decreasing that Jesus would increase. It's saying, Jesus, I want, as far as my life is concerned, My own will, my own word for the way things should be to decrease so that yours would increase. And friends, the promise when we are able by God's help to do this is that whenever Jesus increases in a life or in a place, well, that doesn't ultimately mean our diminishment. That actually means our life in him because it means the increase of the one who himself is life. The one who at the end of this passage, we're told, brings the very words of God and gives the Spirit without measure. So that's the first way that we practically can decrease, to live according not to our own word, but Jesus' word. And the second thing I want to mention is actually, as as a way that we can decrease, is actually something we cannot control. And it's this. To look for Jesus' increase in whatever circumstances we end up in, in whatever circumstances we receive. Friends, so much of life is out of our control. Take John the Baptist, for example. John did not plan his decrease. John did not decide, I want, you know, the number of people who come to me for baptism to decrease. John didn't, as far as I know, uh, increase his uh, offensiveness in the message he was sending to turn people away. John did not seek to be thrown into prison. He did not seek uh, to be beheaded. No, these are things that just happened to him. And friends, there is so much in life that just happens to us. We are now three into the third year of this pandemic and many of other stresses that have also increased in our our nation. And I think as this has happened over the past two years, many of us have experienced decrease. Mental health, compared to, for many of us, where we were two years ago, where we are now is a decrease in mental health. Discuss any mental health therapist, how long their waiting lists are now. In so many ways, mental health has now on the decrease. Productivity, what we were able to accomplish perhaps two years ago for many of us is now relatively on the decrease relationships, for where they may have been two years ago, and it may be because of the pandemic or maybe just because of the nasty ways that we fight in our culture, for many of us, they are now decreased. Maybe you experienced that spiritual strength and vitality is now compared to where it was on the decrease. Well, if this has been your experience and you have had a model of life that is just linear increase in every measure, you probably are feeling now like you have been lied to. Well, friends, given the fallen world and given the way that our bodies and minds will all ultimately go, life in this world is, in the most fundamental respects, decrease. Well, the invitation that John is giving us in this passage is in times of decrease. And it applies to those times, of course, where God blesses us with increase also. But especially in times of decrease, look for the ways that Jesus is at work in the decrease-to-himself increase. What is Jesus doing in the ways you are now experiencing decrease? Is he showing you that in your desperate need, that indeed the greatest need that you and I and all of us have is for His love and not any love that this world could give? Is He showing that we are all in great need of His justice and no justice that we could possibly meet out in our own strength? Is, it showing, is He showing us that in our decrease that we need ultimately His rule and His mercy and His kingdom and ultimately just Him? Is He showing in the decrease that He alone is king. The paradox of how things work in Jesus' kingdom is that it is always by decrease that increase comes. It is by way of the cross that life comes. And that's the way it is in Jesus' kingdom because that's the way it is with the bridegroom. It is the bridegroom who himself will go to the cross for his bride. And so, friends of the bridegroom, all you who are called to be friends of the bridegroom, in whatever it is that you receive, rejoice to hear the bridegroom's voice. Know that it is in your decrease that he finds increase, and that it is in his increase that there is true life and light to all people. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.